This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Usually on this show, not always, but usually, you know what usually means. Anyway, uh, I have a stand-up comedian come on to play one of their jokes, and we talk about everything that went into writing it. That's kind of like what's going to happen on this episode, also kind of not like that, because the comedian we're focusing on, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a freewheeling stand-up from the late 1950s, never existed. She's a character on a TV show played by Rachel Brosnahan. She's the creation of Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, you may also know from the shows Gilmore Girls and Bunheads. So, yes, this is an interview about the writing and performing and shooting of a stand-up routine, but just the comedian is fake. Considering that, you'll probably need a bit more context for what you're about to hear, just in case you don't watch the show already. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has completed two seasons on Prime Video, is based on Amy hearing the stories of her father's time doing stand-up in New York in the 1950s and 60s. And while the show tries to be fairly accurate to the time, you also get a sense that Amy also wants to capture the wonder she felt when she was first hearing the stories about this as a kid. So this is what the show is about. At the start, it's the late 1950s and Midge Maisel, a Jewish housewife living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, decides to dedicate herself to becoming a stand-up comedian after her husband, Joel, leaves her. Throughout the first season, she gets better and better at stand-up working with her manager, Susie, played by Alex Bornstein. In the second season, you start seeing that really committing herself to this life means sacrificing so much of the life she once had and held dear. Yes, there are echoes to the American Jews' relationship to assimilation. That is intentional. Especially in the scene you're about to hear, in which Midge slaps on her nicest borscht belt and performs a late-night set at a Catskills resort. Not only is she performing for the first time in a place that for many years was the center of Jewish comedy, but it's a late-night show, a.k.a. The Dirty Show. Not only that, what you won't hear, but you'll definitely feel, is Mrs. Maisel is caught by surprise when she sees her father in the audience. At this point in the show, she's not told anyone she's performing stand-up, especially not her father, who's played with much gravitas by the one and only Tony Chaloub. And again, I remind you, it's The Dirty Show. And it goes exactly as well as you expect. So, without further ado, here is... The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and after that, the individuals behind her, Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino. Now, this is a much bigger room than you're used to, so it's going to feel completely different. Wait, what? And it'll take longer for the laughs to reach you, and they'll be proportionally quieter because of the tall ceilings. I thought you said this place wasn't that much bigger. Yeah, I also said you looked like Mamie Eisenhower. This place is huge. Keep up. That's her with her makeup on? Yeah. She looks even less funny now. You know what? She's just going to be funny instead of look funny, okay? She's not funny. I'm not paying. No pressure. Nope. Okay, where were we? Laughs will take forever to reach me. Yes, they will. So it might be tough to gauge how it's going. Hold a little longer for the laughs and look down at who you can see in the audience. If they're smiling, you're doing good. What about Mamie Eisenhower would do in this situation? Big room is just more people to fall in love with you. Ladies and gentlemen, the Concord Hotel is pleased to welcome to the stage Mrs. Okay. Maisel. Okay, up. Tits up. Catskills, and I'm starving. Where can you get a decent meal around here? <laughs> food. Food. 24 hours a day. Food. Shouldn't the Catskill season be in winter? With big coats and scarves? What kind of status feeds you 10 meals a day then tell you to put on a fucking bikini and go find a husband? <laughs> the only reason we stand a chance is because the men are too full to run. <laughs> and 
All I see and hear about and dream about is food. Giant portions of food. I know it's the midnight show, I'm supposed to be talking about blowjobs and big tits, but after six weeks up here, tits just start to look like a couple of gross singers baked Alaskas. They're, uh, oh, you've had them. But really, I have great affection for the mountains. I've been coming up here with my family since I was born. It is the best place to have your first nervous breakdown, which automatically comes with spending months in a cabin with your family every year since you were born. My first everything happened in the Catskills. Everything. My mother first told me to keep my knees closed until there's a ring on my finger in the Catskills. Actually, she told me it was biologically impossible to have sex without a ring on your finger. Guess what, Mom? It's not. Anyhow, the first boy I ever kissed, I kissed in the Catskills. Mm -hmm. First time I ever let a boy go Christopher Columbus on my nether regions, it was in the Catskills. And this boy... He was my papa. I... The Catskills. Things happen in the Catskills. All kinds of things happen. Games. There's games. You like games? I like games. And, and when people come up here with kids, they want things for the kids to play so the adults can go be adults. Parents don't really want to know what's going on with the kids behind their backs. I mean, they prefer they weren't eaten by a lion or whatever eats people in upstate New York, but otherwise, secrets. Secrets. Kids have secrets. Mothers and daughters and daughters and fathers. And, you know, it's weird with daughters and fathers, isn't it? Isn't it weird? Is, is it weird? Yes, it. Fucking make up your mind. Because fathers never really know who their daughters are. They, they don't want to know, do they? It would be terrifying to know who they are and what they do. And because they don't really know any of this, sometimes they can just walk in unexpectedly and suddenly it's like, hey, you're a whore. Who are you? Not that I'm a whore. I am definitely not a whore. I do not charge for sex. I mean, that's free. I mean, it's free to guys I want to be free to. My husband, boyfriend, one girl in college, anyone with a decent ticket to a Sinatra concert. Even my mother would give it up for a Sinatra ticket. No, she wouldn't. My mother wouldn't give it up for anything to anyone. Well, my father, she'll, she'll give it up to him. I mean, not that she told me she'd give it up to him, but I'm assuming, well, I'm here, so somebody gave up something to somebody at some point. <laughs> Everyone has sex. Daughters have sex. Sons have sex. Babies come from sex. Boy, I have got to stop saying the word sex. I actually have never said sex this much before. I don't think I've ever said the word sex in front of my father because my father looks like what you'd think a Columbia professor would look like. Lots of brown and tweed and plaid and a scowl of intellectual superiority because he is intellectually superior. He is very smart. My mother once told me that she pictured having sex with his mind on their wedding night so she didn't have to think about his penis. She didn't have to. Some other mother said that to some other person and I overheard that. Anyway. Let's go back to food, shall we? Food. The donkey who looked just like my father stood up and said, Who else wants a piece of this? I, I really, really have to go. But uh, thank you for laughing. Please tip a waiter and enjoy some feel. I will be here all week trying to figure out if I just had some sort of stroke. I'm Mrs. Maisel. Thank you. Good night. So we are here with the the writers behind the joke you just heard, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. You're very welcome. So welcome. So I have plenty of writers on the show, but the majority of the episodes have been about sta- have been with stand-ups. So before we talk about how uh, y- y'all write 
the stand-up, I thought it might be interesting to talk about how Mrs. Maisel wrote it. Like, if she was a person, what her process would have been for a scene like this. So for something like this, at least when she was going into this late night set, would she have planned anything? Would she have jotted anything down? Uh, why? Yeah, at the beginning of the set, absolutely. Because she, first of all, she knows the Catskills. She knows the audience. She's been up there every year with them. These are her people. So she knows they want to talk about food. She knows you can throw a couple of swear words in there as long as it's about food. <laughs> and you can talk about your tits as long as it's your tits are food. You know, mm-hmm. it all comes back to food, sure. basically. So, uh that she sort of knew, but you know, when 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 we conceived of you know Midge at the very beginning, uh, the idea that she was somebody who is going to go on with a plan, and then whatever happens, either on stage or five minutes before she walks on stage, is actually what she's yeah. going to wind up talking about. Is sort of how it sort of stuck with us, and this is like the classic example of she had she had her plan. She went out there. She was doing well. Mm-hmm. She was getting her laughs, and suddenly she was completely thrown for a loop. And then it's just her mind working, yeah. and her mouth is hostage to what her brain is doing. When she is riffing and when she's improvising, I've talked to a variety of comedians and there's sort of two different types of people. Is she hyper present, like hyper aware of everything that's happening, like she's Neo and like she sees the entire Matrix all at once? <laughs> or is she the opposite where she's sort of like completely out of her body and is sort of in a flow state of like everything is happening through her? I think she is, she's experiencing what she's saying a hot second after she said it. it. You know, it's really like, it's an instinctual thing for her, and she is, again, especially this particular piece, because it's so much about, you know, everything that her family didn't know, everything that her father is finding out, everything that her father is thinking, and all she's going through is, what is he thinking? I know what he's thinking. He's thinking this, and then he's going to do this, and like he's going to look like that, and like, oh, God, I said that. I said that out loud. I heard that, and he heard me say that, so that he's expecting So it's a whole sort mm-hmm. of thing that's happening to her uh, that way. She's just, you know, she's... It, just from the very nature of the way she started in the pilot, which was just being hurt, angry, upset, and extremely drunk on on Manischewitz, she gets up on stage and just talks about her hurt. Yeah. It's just the way her hurt manifests itself comes out in joke form. So is is that it? You know, I, I say like different comedians have different sense, like, you know, I describe it as almost like a spidey sense of that you're like, oh, this is material. There's material here. And some be like, oh, this makes me angry or this makes me uncomfortable. Is it, oh, this hurts me in some way? And is that when she's like, oh, there must be something there? I think when she's sitting down calmly to think about what she's doing, she can sort of judge that. I think when she's in the moment, her emotions are just taking over and mm-hmm. she's, you know, it's going to be her, why people love her and what's going to get her into extreme trouble because she's going to go into situations that she has a plan and it's a safe plan and a good plan. And quite frankly, if she stuck to that plan, things would probably turn out okay. Yeah. And then it's going to take a left turn. And by the end of it, she's upended, you know, her entire life career, sure. nobody's speaking to her anymore. But I still think at the end of the day, she'll go back and she'll think, oh, God, I'm so, oh, my God, my father, my this, my that. But I killed. Yeah. Like, it's all going to come back to, but it worked and I got my laughs because she has a very strong competitive, ambitious streak in her. And really, at the end of the day, what matters is, did she get the laugh or not? Yeah, there's sort of an inherent selfishness to stand up. Um, Br- brutality, and, too. Yeah, brutality and, and, and an 
inherent narcissism you're you're saying you know which they share with politicians and other other people like that where they're where their 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 skill is that they're assuming everyone is going to be interested in what they're about to say which right. is not the way most of us go sure. through life most of us are are rethinking things and editing ourselves and the comic has to do the exact opposite so um we 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 play into that you know, when you saw her first stand-up, which was actually the toast that she gave at her wedding in the pilot, that was her first unofficial stand-up, and you saw that it was a woman who, who is used to taking center stage, mm-hmm. thinks that she's the best person to take center stage. It's very comfortable. Yeah, she stage. had the she had the the makings of a comic. She just didn't. It just never occurred to her to become one. So you establish early on in the show that she's at least seen Mort Saul live. She's seen Lenny Bruce perform. So she's sort of up to date what's with what's happening in comedy. I imagine also you guys did research to sort of accurately place her where it's like, okay, it's 1958, so Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, Shelley Berman's happening, but also Gene Carroll and Phil Stiller sort of happening, but also very close on the other side of the decade. You're going to get your Joan Rivers and um, Bill Cosby and Woody Allen. Um, George Carlin. And so then that's on the horizon. Right. Um, but I then imagine at a certain point you sort of like don't care about the specific details because um, in like in the pilot, Joel steals a joke from... Bob Newhart's act in 1958, but Bob Newhart, I don't think, did comedy until 1959. Well, it was from his album. Yeah. And he didn't really do, he was mostly like a radio guy, and he did this album, and then he started performing it. Yeah. Yeah. But I imagine at some point, you're like, okay, these are the type of people, but also her style feels very contemporary. I was thinking about... You, you you both wrote for Roseanne. You wrote for Sinbad's TV show. She reminds me a lot. <laughs> That's just mean. That's just a little cruel. Sir, Sinbad, leave my office. Former guest, Sinbad, I think. Those but are she, fighting words. You wrote a, for Sinbad. is basically you've challenged him to a duel. Just so you know where we are. But she's a lot like Sinbad. Sinbad improvises on stage as well. Yes, yes. Uh, she has notes of Janine Garofalo, Kathy Griffin. Mm-hmm. When I watched it, I was in, instantly I was like, oh, you're a lot like Jen Kirkman, who this mm-hmm. is before she... As Jen tells the story, people would be like, oh, you're like this character before she was even working on this show. Yeah. And I imagine also this is a person that is a stand-up comedian that you guys could write. She has the strengths of your writing and I imagine avoids the weaknesses, whatever they may be, of your writing. So No weaknesses. <laughs> literally no weaknesses. So, again, We've looked for them and, and we, are we couldn't brilliant. find any. In short, why is Mrs. Maisel the comedian that she is, both for her and from, uh, for y- y'all? Well, you know, in, in, in looking for an in, you know, she, she's basically based on my father, and I made him a very attractive, young, 20, 28-year-old woman. So you're welcome, Dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that we were going to probably wind up casting a, an actress, not someone who's done stand-up. Now, stand-up is a very specific um, skill set and a very specific medium, and it's, it's very different. We figured out that for an actress to be able to find her way into the comedy and not feel like, not have the audience going like, oh, she's not really a comic. I mean, she's adorable, but no. She would have to be a storyteller. She would have to be an emotional storyteller. She would have to be somebody who 
is is telling you kind of what's going on with her at that moment. And that dictated kind of everything that we do about Midge's comedy. And when we write Midge's comedy, she it it has to be story based in some form. It's can't she rarely comes out and goes, Who ate a grilled cheese today? Yeah. You know, you know, donuts, why are they round? A square donut would be just as delicious. Like she's gotta talk about That's something. funny. And I, <laughs> Uh, that's saying, going in. I can do so much on square donuts. You have no Such idea. Such a great observation. But um, she's got to do something about about what's going on in her life in the moment, and that I think is the that enabled Rachel, who is not a comic, yeah. and, and in fact, not only is not a comic, she'd barely done any com- comedy at <laughs> sure. all. She was a dramatic uh, actress and a wonderful dramatic actress, but it it the story allows her to find the trajectory through. Um, a stand-up piece. And I think that dictated more than anything else the kind of um, stand-up that Midge has to be because to pull it off every week and to make people feel like every week, because you know I come from when you did a show every (laughs) week, it's not like that. Apparently it's eight hours and no one goes to the bathroom and then it's over till next year. But um, she needed to convince the audience that she's not only somebody who legitimately could be a great but as she gets better and better and more confident, they are buying it and they are totally on the journey with her. Otherwise, we're an utter and abject failure. Did you think of both of the time comedians and present day comedians that you could pull from when you're just sort of thinking about it? Well, we thought about the timing only because, as you mentioned, with Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul, like the comedy was changing a little bit from like, take my wife, please, to let's talk about politics, let's talk about sexuality, let's talk about men and women relationships, let's talk about society. Um, and, and we wanted her to be plunked down in that moment where conversations were changing because her whole existence is about, I was queen of the Upper West Side and now my whole life is changing. So it just felt like... Time-wise, it was the right place to put her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of other stuff came, you know, some, some of it's uh, a lucky, you know, accident. Um, Lenny Bruce was a very specific pick because he embodied the kind of comedy that I think Midge, in her own way, would admire, would listen to, would, would be drawn to. And, and there's a great story about Lenny Bruce where he went to see Joan Rivers yes. once and she bombed and he sent her back a note that said, you're right, they're wrong. And that story was like in a time where, I mean, forget about what women comics go through today, but back then women comics really not only had a struggle, but had to figure out how to cloak femininity so that anybody would listen to them and laugh at them. You know, that a man, a smart man for all of his uh, shortcomings and troubles later on could look at a woman like Joan Rivers and say, you have it, keep going. That's like a big deal. So it felt like that's a great sort of muse to sort of throw into the mix. As you mentioned, the stand-up inherently has to come from the story. So as we talk about this set, going all all the way back while you're plotting the season, what made you think, okay, episode five as a middle midpoint of the season will be a certain turning point where she's doing this set and her father will see her perform. How did sort of the arc of the season around that point uh, come together? Well, I mean, we knew that, you know, she had, she had been hiding this for obviously for the whole first season from everybody in her life, except Joel and Susie, and then was still hiding it. And that had to come to an end. And so we, we had, we had long figured, uh, we, we had talked about who is the best person to find out first. What's the best way? Well, the best way to find out is if someone close to her, like 
her dad, is sitting in the audience. So we, when we constructed the Catskills episodes, we, we knew all along that she was going to grab some gig via Susie and her plunger skills, and that he and that we would construct as best as we could, because it was kind of a stretch, to get Tony Shalhoub to be sitting in that audience. So we always knew that, that, that he was going to be the first one. And from there, we knew that she was going to have to tell everybody. And he was the best person because this, we've all, you know, she was very, very close to her mother. Um, she's always lived in the same building as her, as her parents. They're actually a really, really ridiculously close family, but she and Abe, Midge and Abe always had a little bit of, of just coldness between them. Well, distance, you distance, know, yeah. it, it was a, it was not an atypical family where the son was closer to the father and the daughter was closer to the mother. So it felt very natural that as she shifts and finds a voice, the friction was going to build between her and her mother, and she would possibly be drawn more to her father, a man that she didn't know as well, um, and who is more of uh, a thinker, you know, and and now she's becoming a thinker. So it, it just felt... It felt like the right sort of shift. And also when we talked about the Catskills in general, there were so many things that we wanted to do, but the Catskills as, as a trio, the three episodes, were representing a, a real sort of, like, you know, by the end of the Catskills, Abe knows what she's doing. She's met a new man. Her and Joel have officially said to each other, we're going our separate ways. Like, a lot happens in these three episodes Amidst the Simon Says and the tomato yeah, juice sure. and the, you know, initial dance. And Don't forget the romper. The romper. Oh, yeah. the romper. romper. I mean, really, the only reason we did the cast <laughs> is all is to put Tony Shalhoub in a romper. There was really no other reason to go. But it was really about how do these three episodes then, everybody comes back from the Catskills changed and different. And then the Catskills itself will never be the same mm-hmm. for this family. And that was, it was a ritual for them. It was something they looked forward to and they loved and they did. And now they're all going to leave the Catskills and the Catskills are just going to feel a little different. And it was also, time-wise, yeah. the beginning of the decline of the Catskills. So it's just, it's all sort of wrapped up together in a in a tomato juice bowl. So when actually writing the, the, the stand-up parts, how, sort of how do you go about breaking down a set just from like, okay, maybe it's an index card and some outline to then do break it in the room. And then how does the sort of scripting of something like this? Happen? Are you talking about midges or midges? Well, mi- midges, di- we approach them differently. Yeah, yeah. We approach them really differently. Mid- midges always, like Amy said before, it always comes out of the situation that she's in. Uh, for instance, in the, the first Sophie Lennon episode, she was supposed to, that was classically, she was supposed to do her tight 10. We had seen her working on it in the beginning of the show. She was becoming a normal stand-up comic, but that sit-down she had with Sophie just stuck in her craw, and she could not let herself not talk about Sophie Lennon and who she is and what that means for her and her profession and of course, she did it right in front of the guy uh, who was Gosh, Sophie's. Funny. Who, who, yeah, who was <laughs> who, who who could have given her her first really 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 big break. So so that situation came out of once she once she pivoted from her tight ten onto Sophie Lennon, then that stuff is even easier for us to write because it it's it's story and it's passion and we know exactly what she's feeling. 
So it, it, same thing with the when she, when she got uh, stoned with the jazz musicians, and then she said, let me talk, let me talk. So sort of this hyper mm-hmm. sort of being high for the first time kind of drove her on the stage. And then she pivoted to she had her Dr. Spock baby book in her in her in her in her purse. And then she just wanted to ask the ladies in the audience, who knows this book? Who is following this book? Am I supposed to be a mother? So all that stuff really just, it comes out in the story breaking process. We know it. We, we don't get to the stand up and go, okay, what's her stand up? Yeah, we, no, we know what her stand up is going to be. stand up, there's no separate process for the stand up. It is not standalone. It's yeah. just part of a script. You know, I sit in my room and I write a script. He sits in his room, he writes a script. Um, it's really the other stand-ups, like when we have her go to a club and there's a bunch of guy stand-ups yeah. there. Or, you know, we never write Lenny Bruce stand-up. It's always Lenny Bruce because <laughs> we're not idiots, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for fuck's sake. Anyhow, um, but that's when, you know, a lot of times we can we go to the group and we, we would say we want this kind of comic. We, you know, a guy that talks about his wife or this guy who does impressions or something like that. And... And that's where we have all these great stand-ups who uh, are still working comics. So we grab them when they're in town, and they come in, and they, it's and it's it's tricky. Like actually, those are are trickier because you know we can write Midge's stuff because we are just in her head. But writing these other pieces and also keeping them period correct, so you can't talk about certain things in the way that you could talk about them now. Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a tricky thing, and so we 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 get we get a little help. So you've talked about how you don't write in the same room together. You're not like a writing duo. That's no, like no. oh, well, that's why we're still married. <laughs> so how does it actually then work? Does someone write and then they pass it? Like is someone better at generating? Someone better at editing? No, we we, we both do the same. Yeah, we both do the same thing. Yeah. So we just we break the stories together with the room, and then we go off and we write them and we polish them, and then we you know I'll show them to him, and he'll say you have too many fucks in it. You've got to take 10 out and I will say talk to David Mamet and he will say I don't, I'm not talking to David Mamet I'm talking to you and you should take 12 out and I will say I'll take 3 out and he'll say take 6 out and I'll say 4 it's my last offer and we end up at 5 and then you know and vice versa like it's you know he'll show me his script and I'll give him you know whatever thoughts that mm-hmm. I have but it's a it, you know, we were never a team, so it, it just but what we do really well together, we really understand these characters in the story and we have like a big shorthand in the room so we can go in there and we can break these stories and sometimes sentences aren't finished and other writers looking at us like I don't are we is there a subject here you seem to know what you're talking about and no one else seems to but we've just done it so long with each other that that's a very efficient way of breaking these stories and yeah, sort and of we, judging them we out. break them in the room in in a lot of detail great detail yeah. a lot of detail so there there's nothing left of the imagination and the dialogue is sort of like the icing on the cake the story is always has always been the most important part for us that's why on Gilmore Girls it was always like the dialogue the dialogue and we were we, we were always feeling like and saying to people it's actually the story breaking process for us we spend I think way way more hours delving into the details and the fine refining that you do to get a story so that you're hiding the seams so that people, you know, because the, the audience is always right. And if they kind of feel like the first half was not as good as the second half, then they're right. So mm-hmm. we just really try to solve every problem and hide every seam in the story breaking process. And then we go off and write them. And, and, uh, and our scripts are very dense. They're very long because of the pace. So 
we don't love the idea of you put a script out, you table rate it, and then you're sending copious pages down to set every day. I feel like that is uh, inefficient and a little disrespectful for the amount of material our actors have to learn and process and ingest. We feel like our job as writers uh, and storytellers is to argue about every hole, every point, everything that could possibly come up before we, we, we hand Rachel a script and say, here, now go learn you know, 80 pages. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we feel like once we hand it off to sets and, and to costumes and to everybody, that they need to just be able to go do their jobs. And, uh, and because of that, I, I know some, some shows work differently. Like they go down and then, they, and then every day sometimes there'll be a, a scene or a this or a that. And that is just, it's just not our style. And I think it wouldn't work well with scripts as large as our scripts are. Do you remember writing, either you writing the joke that's like she imagined having sex with his mind so she didn't have to imagine having sex, couldn't have to think about having sex with his penis? Mm-hmm. That's I, a you, I, right? I, that was a me. Yeah. That was a me. Well, first of all, I had the word penis in it. So yeah. it's like a 50-50, a 60-40 shot's going to uh, be even me. Even more. If more. it's dirtier, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be me, mm-hmm. weirdly. I'm getting it all out. I'm getting it all out. Um... Yeah, well, it just, again, it was a very organic, I sure. I write like a mental patient. Um, I have literally no business being in this business. I can't spell or do grammar to save my life. I did not go to college. I thought I was going to be a dancer. I'm completely ill-equipped for this. So when I write, it's like sort of a furious uh, bulimia binge of... <laughs> Of, um, it's messy. Yeah, it's just, you just don't want to be anywhere near it. Very so, few commas. And then I go back and I take out half of the mm-hmm. ridiculousness and then I condense it down. But it's, and so that literally, the mind penis thing, just, it was just part of the, I'm picturing her staring at Abe, he's staring at her. It just sort of. What's the worst thing she could possibly yeah, say? Yeah. She had dirty parts of her, even her first set. Why was that key to her character? You know, I think all of the sort of female leads you have will have a certain amount of like um, proudly sexual in, in ways. And, and especially this is in a period piece, why it's important to have a character that was like that as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean she's, we, it, she, she's a forward thinking by nature person. And the, the, the presence of Lenny Bruce was there to sort of be the signpost for the audience to say, like, this is a contemporary for her. It's not Milton Berle. It's not Bob Hope. It's not these guys that have writers write for them, and then they just spout jokes. It's not Sophie Lennon. You know, Lenny Bruce was, you know, I haven't met a comic that has not been a fan of Lenny Bruce. Um, and that's because he, 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 he's, he's the godfather of everyone out there, Sarah Silverman, everyone who has any sort of edge, any sort of like he, he kind of inherently created that and then had to who, and then had to sort of die for other people's sins. Like sure. he, kind, he kind of sacrificed himself and got lost in it. And, um, but he was a truth teller. And, and we wanted and Midge. Core, we wanted Midge to be a truth yeah, teller too. Yeah, she's a truth teller. I mean, she's not. She's not a shock jock. She's somebody who is of her time. And when you're talking about, well, what would a woman really talk about? What are the things that she's feeling? It. You. You're. You're supposed to be in a certain box. You're supposed to look a certain way. You're supposed to talk a certain way. You're supposed to uh, conduct yourself in a certain way. Men can have sex. Women can't. You know. It's like there was a lot of things going on there that were 
coming up in her in her brain and part of the shocking things that she did in the pilot for her and her time was to show that when she was in the zone there was sort of an ambitious brutality to her and she had the cutthroat feel and instinct that it would take to go there. I mean, you can't really do anything about comics. It's not that every comic is dirty, and that's not true. Of course, there's very clean comics. I mean, Ellen DeGeneres was one of the richest people in the entire world, and she was never a dirty comic. She did a whole thing about a goldfish in a bowl, and it was like, it was very funny, and the goldfish didn't fuck anybody. It was just a goldfish in a bowl. It was adorable. But um, It did when it grew up, though. Yeah, it was very dirty, angry, drug-addicted goldfish Mm -hmm. when it grew up. But it, but... But the world itself is a rough world. It's a world of nighttime, of darkness. You're in shadows all the time. You're sleeping during the day. Your existence is night. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of smoking. There's a lot of fucking going on. It's like, it's what it is. And to to do a show with a woman and then pull back from that just felt like it would be kind of a cheat because I think part of what the appeal of it is is for her to this freedom of being able to talk about whatever is on her mind and have people listen to her. How do you approach shooting stand-up? It's a thing that I think even people who are currently shooting stand-up specials are still trying to figure out what you can do. What was What is your sort of philosophy uh, in terms of how close and how far away and all those sort of things? Because it is complicated to feel live. To feel there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we approach it from a variety of ways. I mean, I, I can tell you off, off, the first thing that came to mind is that there are, are certain parts of her stand-up that we tell Rachel, this we, we, we don't want to cut away from this. Like, once you start this rant, I want to get this in one shot. And she's always a gamer for that because I think, you know, for like seeing like a live comedy special, there's always like a, a lot of weird cuts and edits because they're cutting between different shows Mm -hmm. and they suddenly go to a wide shot because they're jumping from one joke to the next joke. What we get to do is like, we're crafting, we're crafting it in a, in in a, in a, in a very, very specific fictional way. So, um, we tend to get a lot of angles. We tend to bring in a third camera. We always have two cameras. We tend to bring in a third camera on her standup days. So we get a lot of shots from different angles that, we, we, yeah, we always get kind of the same shot, and then we'll throw in a, a special shot or two if we know we're going to use it um, in editing. So something like so something like I talked about before, where we know it's going to be this is going to be one angle. Maybe we want it to be a steady cam down in the audience, that's sort of creeping very slowly in on her because we know she's emphasizing the point that we want her to emphasize in this stand-up. So we, we, we approach them all. There's sort of a basic thing that we do, and then we do a lot of customizing depending on what the, on what the point of view and what the exact stand-up is Will she about. perform the set through? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Always. And, yeah. and you know, we also, we tend to, uh, we, well, we never go close because I don't think comedy works good close. Mm-hmm. I think it's crazy. I don't know why. I don't need to see up your nostril when you're trying to be funny. Comedy is about your body. It's about motion and movement. Midge is a stalker. She takes that thing. She moves. You know, if I cut it off and I did it here, it would just be insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so we never go close. And we uh, do always do a steady cam pass because we mm-hmm. kind of live and die by steady cam because it's, it is immediate and it is movement and it is human. 
Um, and it is alive. And a lot of times you do these great three cameras and it's beautiful and you get the smoke and the shafts and this and that, but it's not alive. Yeah. Steadicam is alive. So you're with her and you feel it. Um, we, I did a scene with Lenny Bruce recently that hasn't been on yet, but the whole point of it was to hit at a certain point. So the whole shot was crafted to sort of be with him and feel with him until you hit a certain point. So we actually, our stand-up as we, I mean, one of the benefits of writing it is when you write it, you can figure out how you want it shot as Mm -hmm. you're doing it. So it's not like a big discussion when you go down there. We can literally put it in the stage direction and then you go here and this will be this and we will be, and we save certain things like a behind her shot. We don't overuse it. We use it. It's a star shot. No matter what you do, when you do the you know, the behind shot, the Lenny shot, you know, the Fosse shot, you gotta, you gotta be telling people she's a star. You can't just use it to use it. It doesn't mean anything. So we think a lot about camera in terms of what does it mean? Don't just use it because it's pretty. We're not big believers in that. We think people should be in the moment and not be going, well, that's a great shot. Mm -hmm. That's so pretty. It's like, we want them to be listening to her and sort of leaning into her. So um, and she's also gotten very addicted to the audience. We have yeah. an audience for her and we have them laugh and we respond and react. And she feeds off of that. Like Rachel really feeds off of that. Like a real comic would feed off yeah. of that. And then when you try and go in and say, Hey honey, can we do one without the laugh? She's like, no, do you want it to suck? Do you want it to yeah. be terrible? Do you want it in my career? We can do that. That would be great. I can just, I can, you know, go apply for a job somewhere else. That's what I can do. Or you got to give me my laughs. You got to give me my energy. You got to give me my audience. And so she tends to win those battles. Speaking of the audience, there's something that happens in this scene that happens in a lot of the standups where there'll be certain jokes that you'll do an audience cut away and women are laughing more than men are. As a person who watches a lot of standup, it was something that I, at clock. And Why? Well, women are going to be her audience. I mean, yeah. that's just the bottom line. She, She's doing her act for everybody, but she's really doing it for women. She's saying, I'm here talking, saying things that you can't say, you know, that you can go home that later on and look at your husband and kind of go, yeah, yeah, you're doing that weird thing that she was talking about. And I can't tell you, but you heard it. You heard that we noticed that you do that weird thing. And I think that that's kind of one of the wonderful things is she's not afraid to say, Hey, we're, Mm -hmm. this is us broads. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Um, so we actually make a very conscious choice that it's very important that women are the ones responding to her because it's unrealistic to say, Oh, men are just going to embrace this woman in 1959. It's not going to happen, but the women could because there's no one speaking for them. You, you, you talk about a bunch that it, it reminded me of that there's, you so clearly like, oh, there's an idea in comedy that has existed that maybe now is kind of being confronted that there's not a universal funny. There's like a lot of comedians like funny is funny. And if you're funny and usually it's men saying it because everywhere they went, everyone laughed at them and they didn't. Right. And <laughs> this show sort of is confronting that. And by pointing a light to like, oh, there are people who might like this more and that is is fine. Was that important to you to sort of get that? That you're like, this comedy is not one thing and she is a specific artist. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before. The comedy, the, the, the first rule of comedy is that, the, is that the audience has to be interested in what you have to say. So that takes a specific kind of person. And then the second thing is you have to find a, a way to say things that make them laugh. And then there's, there's like a million ways to make people laugh. 
and it's kind of it's kind of a mystery how a lot of people do it. Um, it's kind of obvious how some people do it, but it's not easy how they do it. Um, it's a really fascinating world when you when you start when you start delving into it because you could have someone with like a natural uh, slower pace like Bob Newhart, and then you've got much faster paced comedians, and you can find both funny, but they're both so completely different. There are different kinds of comedy, you know, and you are going to respond to a certain comic because they speak to something in you. And that is not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And in this era, there just were not that many people speaking to women at all. Yeah. So it's just a natural thing that the women are going to lean in a, a little more and that the men, even if she was saying something that would make the men laugh, it's going to be harder for them to accept it from her at that moment. Some men can. You know, we have her down in the village a lot because the village had a little bit more of an open sort of, it was it was more integrated and it was more artsy and, and there were a little more free thinking and political down there. But, you know, she does a club in Midtown. You know, the men are going to be like, you know, hey, honey, let's, you know, let's let's see your tits, yeah. you know, and 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 she's going to go on stage and say, why do I have to listen to this schmuck say, let, let's see, show me your tits? Why do I have to do that? And the women are going to lean in and go, yeah, I know, because I'm so tired of hearing that. I walked on the street. I was at the market yesterday. I'm like, really? I'm in the produce section. So it's like that sort of feel is it's it's what any comic or anybody wants to do. They want to find a a a, a road that makes <laughs> them special. That is yeah. people who maybe no one is speaking to as much, and it's like I'll take those people. Why not? You know, I want to be listened to. You've talked about a lot of this was inspired by your dad would tell stories of this era. Did he mention female comedians? Did you remember feeling you wish there were more female comedians? He would talk about or he could talk about? It, did he? I don't know. I, I don't I, think so. I don't get the sense <laughs> I that... I bet my dad didn't think prods were funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, I never asked him. But. Yeah, I think he may... He, 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 he lived in a man's world, for sure. sure. He did. And he didn't... Uh, you know, he, he, Amy's mom is a dancer and a performer, so he married a dancer. Um, I don't think he would have married a female comedian. Oh, God. No matter what no. she looked like. <laughs> No, no, he wouldn't. Um, so is in this way the show's a bit corrective of like... <laughs> <laughs> it's payback? Yeah. Ooh. No. He's, it's, hitting, it's, he's, hitting, he's hitting home now. It's really he? not. I mean, actually, weirdly, it's, it's an homage to my father who was a very complicated man and a very, uh, very funny man. And our relationship was very weird at the end. Um, I was an only child, so we were like one of those crazy, like, it's just the three of us. It was yeah. like a cult. Like, it's just the three of us. No one can, don't answer the door. It's just the three of us. We're just going to sit here and stare at each other because it's just the three of us. And I'm like, I was, I was like, you know, 30 before I said, Did I, do we have relatives? Is there anyone outside of this weird cult mm-hmm. of ours? But um, if anything, it's really sort of a tip of the hat and an homage to the fact that he spun tales of Greenwich Village and, and the Catskills and yeah. touring and... And and watching how he and his friends made each other laugh, and they were really funny. I mean, my dad gave me the two thousand year old man albums, and that was it. Like that's been my bible for, for the yeah. rest of my life. So there's no payback here, um, mom. There's no <laughs> payback, mom. This is fine. It's all good. Um, don't make a phone call. But um, 
it's just, it, it is, it's, you know, I don't think that I thought a lot about, because frankly, I was supposed to be a dancer, so I don't know that I even thought that much about the world of yeah, comedy. Yeah, yeah. It was just something that was in my house and around my house, and I knew my dad's friends, and I, you, you know, you when the door opened, you're like, oh, okay, hello, dad's got friends over. So, you know, it's like, it's that that feeling, but my world was supposed to be very different. My world was point shoes and Broadway. And, and then I realized, Oh wait, they'll pay me to do something else. And then I can eat a sandwich. Did he incorporate like, you know, this scene is partly built upon Midge's dad being uncomfortable, being part of a comedian's uh, being part of her material, which is a thing I talk to a lot of comedians and I'm like, Oh, do your kids have a problem when they're like, well, they grew up, you know, like, and they don't know. They're basically like, I just too late now. Did you grow up and did you have feeling about it? Were you part of his material? Did you have feelings about that? I was Amy Enda. I yeah. was. He does a whole thing about teaching me to teaching swim to and that I, it's, it's, I mean, I was a kid, so it didn't really matter. But, you know, I, I. That's his album behind you, by the yeah. way. I know this isn't going to work on the podcast, but. <laughs> There's let an there, album behind me. Yes. <laughs> that let There Be Grass was his probably biggest seller. Uh, and, it was on and, Laugh and, Records. And best album. It and was best a very album. clean yeah. album. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not mean clean, like not dirty. Yeah. I mean just like a like a Worked. great yeah. bits. Yeah. You know, the thing about being a comic, and we deal with that in many ways, not just A, but, you know, with Joel, yeah. is you have to be brutal enough to talk about the shit. And if you can't talk about it, then you can't do it. And mm-hmm. that's that's just the bottom line. And that's kind of the sad reality of comedy is it's funny if you can go for the things that people will laugh at and people won't laugh at puppy dogs and rainbows they're gonna laugh at like complicated relationships or weird fantasies or loneliness or heartache or the way your parents relate to you and unfortunately if your parents hear it they may not like it very much Mm -hmm. and that and then you have to decide am i is what's more important to me? Is it more important to me to protect my family and my friends? And, or is it more important to just kind of give everything I have to this? And that's part of the wonderful thing about Midge's story is she has to decide, yeah. you know? We'll be back with more Dan and Amy after this word from our sponsors. So uh, we're back with Dan and Amy. I want to talk a little bit more about dialogue writing. Uh, I want to play a scene that opens up season two, episode nine. Hey, that guy's over there. Okay. That guy that told you about that thing that day. That thing about the weird dude and his weird friend doing that dumb thing? And you told me and I told you I'd already heard about it and you said it was a different thing, but it wasn't? Oh, yeah. What's his name? I forget. I don't know. Something to do with fish. Oh, it's gonna bother me. Hey, Susie, you hear about the big arthritis telephone on WNPO next Tuesday? They're looking for acts, but spots are going fast. A spot? On TV? That'd be sensational. Why am I just hearing about this? Just heard it myself. Marge of the Booker's at table six. You gotta give me a heads up about these things, Fred. I don't work for you. Margie? Susie Myerson. I rep a comic that would be great for the telephone. She's an up-and-comer. Get someone I know it about for, or maybe I'll work her in. Piece of cake. You know Margie? From way back. She's doing a telethon. I'll vouch for my girl. Done deal. Well, it's in the bag. That's fantastic. It's dead. What? Dougie said. Why? Margie hates Dougie. You should have gone to Kenny. It's your job to keep me up to date on these things, Fred. I don't work for you. Shit. Where's Margie? Must have left. Her assistant's at table 12. She can pull the trigger. Good thing for you, Fred. I don't work for you. Listen, I've got a hot gal with a lot of talent for you. Get the hell away from my table, bitch. The chicks are stiff. 
Wait, did I say table 12? I meant table 10. Hey! Kenny, you get along with Margie. I love Margie. You vouch for my girl? Sure thing. Thanks. Hey, sorry about the bitch thing. Margie's assistant? Who's asking? Have I got a comic for the telephone? Kenny will vouch for. Kenny? Problem? Cindy likes you. Margie's girl. Take her to dinner? Why not? Thanks. I got you dinner with Kenny. Hey, neat. My girl's name is Maisel. I'll tell Margie to slaughter in. Good deal. Done. Done? Done. Joey Mackerel. That's the guy's name. I was right about fish. I was thinking Branzino. Hmm. Joey Branzino is someone else. He's not even in the business. Why are so many guys here named after fish? Beats me. So that one, which is so musical and so rhythmic, um, how do you do it? Do you write the song to the, the, do you write the scene to that song? Yeah, Dan, how do you do it? How do you do it, Dan? Oh, actually that song was the last thing we added. I mean, that, that, that whole scene was sort of subtitled an anatomy of a deal. It was supposed to show Susie's growing skill at basically manipulating people, selling people, and to do it in a really quick, rhythmic way. We have this great set, the stage, uh, our stage deli set is, is not a, on a stage, it's actually at, in, deli. at an old, <laughs> defunct deli on the Upper West Side. They kind of bugged out, they left a lot of their equipment and a lot of, their, a lot of the equipment you see in there is just this deli's equipment and we rent the space and we put the tables in. So we have this great big space that looks real because it is real and Part of the idea for this started as like I knew that I could get something from the table hopping because of the size of the space. So I, I pictured them in their original in their in their kind of hero booth, and then I knew that it would be funny to watch Alex Borstein jumping from table to table as she sort of manipulates people and and sells people and gets one person wrong and then makes up to that person. It was written very rhythmically. I mean, it was written obviously, uh, it sort of in a almost like in a heightened Damon Runyon style, mm-hmm. where she because it had to be fast and it just had to be boom, 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 and then that Louis Prima song just it fit. It it, it like set as soon as it, when we put music in, we know immediately whether it works or not. And that one you put in and just that bum bum banana just was the right rhythm for that piece but the music actually came came last for that one i mean the the rhythm of and the pace of the writing is the thing that people obviously always talk about is it in your head could you sing the rhythm of this show is the rhythm different than gilmore girls like could you be like oh one's like and one's like you know i don't know about the singing in your head unless we're really drunk but um which we are i think gilmore was the beginning of crafting the way we like comedy because we had such free reign um up until then i think we had we'd worked on other shows that other people create and you have to sort of adjust to their um you know i i roseanne was my first job and i i remember like as great as that job was i remember there's times that i would write a joke and i would be like i just wish she would say it faster but i was She's kind of like, I was an idiot. It's like, she's going to say it the way she's going to say it, and it's going to be great, and everyone's going to love it. But there was sort of a clock in me that um, just just love people to answer a little faster. So when we got Gilmore Girls, and they kind of left us alone out of terror and and maybe hope that we would just leave without anyone telling us to, Mm -hmm. which we didn't. And then we got, you know, we had Lauren Graham, who's like, a machine gun like she's just so good at the comedy that breakneck you know 
Howard Hawksy sort of mm-hmm. like she's just sensational at that, and and not just saying words that are saying words, delivering jokes at breakneck pace and acting. I mean, it was just and so when you have that sort of creature at yeah. your at your disposal, you uh, abuse them and exploit them for your own personal gain. And I think it started our sort of, and also because we had no money on Gilmore Girls. So literally it was like, we've got to walk them around Burbank for like an hour. Mm -hmm. So what are they going to do? They just got to talk. So it it was sort of honing our craft. and, And I think the wonderful thing about this for us is we get to exploit the pace and the energy, and then we can also stop on a dime. And we can have the moment of breath, and we can have the beauty, beauty shots, and we can have the serious things, and just let it be, um, which is a wonderful luxury that that comes with um, money. <laughs> Basically, all good things come with money. Yeah, I mean, the best one of the best things about doing this show for us is that we, we we've always felt like comedy, um, the the networks, especially in TV, the networks were not into putting money into comedies. Like dramas, maybe they would spend, you know, they would do a Lost and they would put a lot of money into Lost. But there was no equivalent of Lost on the comedy side. They tended to do either multicam, which is very, very cost efficient, or a single camera like Gilmore Girls, which they still really just wanted to beat down to the bare bones thing. Because they felt like if you write funny words and have funny people say them on the camera, it doesn't matter your shots and all that stuff. That's that's just our tour stuff. We don't care about that. But we always felt like that, that that was wrong. And we always felt like if you gave us a shot and gave us the finances to show you that great camera work and, bet, and, and more time to block shots and rehearse actors with really much more complex material. And beautiful production values. Yeah, and beautiful production values. Costumes. Yeah, that that's not, that's not going against what comedy is. It's like, you know, because the old, it started with like, when they filmed Laurel and Hardy, Laurel and Hardy would just be in a two shot. And they're funny guys. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. They would just like be funny and they would stay in that one two shot. And, and it sort of came from that. It's like, you get funny people, you stand them in front of the camera, maybe you'll cut back and forth a little bit for editing, but like that's all you need. And a lot of times that works, but we wanted to expand and do something on a bigger scale and prove that it, it, can, it can enhance the material, not just like, here's a, here's a postcard, and then here's the funny material. So right. we wanted to going, marry going those things. Going back to Philadelphia story and bringing up Baby, where the women were in gorgeous gowns and their hair was beautiful and the sets were big and lavish and parties had a lot of people. And they were still funny and falling over things. It was like one did not take away from the other. Mm-hmm. And we just uh, wanted a chance to prove that. And I don't know, hopefully we have. So one of the scenes we just talked about was about Adeli. The other one said at the Catskill. So I just want to talk about a little bit about the Jewishness of the show. I could talk for forever about the Jewishness what, they're of the show. Jews? <laughs> There's there there are. Um, in so much as Gilmore Girls I thought they is were a, Wiccan. <laughs> in so much as Gilmore Girls is a show about wasps and waspiness, how is Maisel your show about Jews and Jewishness? Well, the weird thing about Gilmore Girls, it was the most Jewish waspy show mm-hmm. on the face of the earth because their cadence, their rhythms, their um, a lot of their references were extremely Judaic. Like it was, it was straight out of Borscht Belt sometimes. Um, and we would joke about that because literally everyone in that cast was like gorgeous and Irish and like, mm. you know, perfect little noses and like, you know, like just really like, like very white yeah. and very like non, non-Yiddish. Yeah. And yet the humor 
was a little Yiddish. Yeah, it was that that show was right Yiddish cast British. Yeah, basically. that's what it was. That's what it was. And the so, old yarn. but this one we wanted to, you know, we were doing the world of a of a, you know, for me, comedy is viewed through the lens of Judaism. That's that's that again. It's the rhythms. It's the uh, references. It's two thousand year old man. It's yeah. the way I personally grew up with comedy. Um, it's what I hear in my ear when I think about jokes and when I think about comedy. So to me, like there was never like a moment where it's like, should she be Jewish? It was just like, well, she's going to be Jewish, clearly. Sure. And and then we wanted to show, you know, upper middle class, elegant. You know, we wanted to show, and we wanted to immerse ourselves in who these people were. We wanted to go to the Catskills. We wanted to show Yom Kippur. We wanted to show the 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 fact that they were so um, woven into the fabric of America that they weren't uh, these. This family isn't outsiders. Yeah. They are. They are. America. They are the Upper West Side. Yeah. They are New York. Um, and we wanted to embrace that. And then, you know, with Joel's family, we got to portray a little bit more of the, you know, the pushcart um, yeah. tenement, you know, sweat, sweat of my brow, kind of build something from nothing, no matter what. It's like a different Jewish experience, but just as valid and just as interesting. And the fact that these two kids yeah. found each other, it's the melding of to two different kinds, two different separate viewpoints and taking that to the next level with their children, Ethan and Esther. And it was, uh, it's just been sort of not even like a, should we even a conscious kind of, mm-hmm. it was just, this is who they are yeah. and this is what their lives are. And this is how we, you know, this is how we must portray them because they are who they are. They are who they are. But yeah. You know, when I when I watched the show the first time, I, I I thought of Midge as sort of like a superhero, a, a Jap superhero with superpowers. Dan, Dan calls her; he, she found her superpower. Yeah. But um, upon when I rewatched it for the interview, I kept on thinking of her. She's like a, a Jewish Walter White. Uh, <laughs> in, really? I'll explain why. So, in so yes, much as like please. you know, Breaking Bad is a show about a person breaking bad and uh, put in the situation finds turns into a sort of a power hungry murder murdering criminal. And Maisel's something worse. She's a stand-up comedian. But for for Walter, he's making this addictive drug, but he's addicted to the power of it. And as as you know from being around comedians, as I know from being around comedians, they're they are they have to do it. Getting laughs is something they're addicted to. Mm. It the ambition becomes a compulsion. Yes, it does. As I rewatch, especially as you episode maybe seven or so on, there is a darkness to what she is sacrificing and. That narcissism become is can be viewed as much darker if you pay attention to it and you don't get distracted by the nice clothes or whatever. What is she to you? What is the balance you wanted to strike about who she is as sort of a superhero or an anti-hero? I don't think in terms in terms of balance. I think it's in terms of choice and life is choices and every choice you make is going to have some sort of consequence, good or bad. And you know, women today are really they're still dealing with the. You know, Cheryl Sandberg and her dumb book about lean in. It's like, all right, Cheryl. Um, but it's like, it's, you can't, I just, I'm not a subscriber to you can have it all. You yeah. can't have it all. Something is going to affect something else. And kind of the wonderful journey of Midge is that she is a woman who, you know, she didn't really even make this choice. It was sort of, it found her. Yeah. You know, she didn't ask Joel to leave her. She was never happier. And she, and we've often said, 
at the end of her life, she's never probably going to be happier than she was right before Joe left her. Yeah. Like that was the happiest, yeah. safest, most content. She thought she had everything in her life and then it all blew up. Her life is gonna be more exciting, it's gonna be more interesting, it's going to, she'll travel more, she'll have sex with different men and that could be good and bad and indifferent, but at the end of her life she will have lived a more adventurous, maybe more interesting life, but not not the comfort and the warmth and the happiness and the safeness that she had before. And that's all about choice. And she, as you get addicted to something, something else is gonna fall by the mm -hmm. wayside. And if you want to take that thing and be the best you can possibly be at it, something else is going to give. And I do not believe, people can tell me anything that they want, you know, it takes a village, sure, whatever. <laughs> takes a village, you know, I think that it's more interesting to really just sort of look at life like it is. Like, this was my choice, and because I did this, this fell away. And that's what she's going through. And she's learning that loneliness sometimes can come with ambition. And it's a sad choice, and it's a scary choice, but what would her life be if she didn't take it to that nth degree? Then you have regrets. Yeah. Then you have what could I have been? What could I, what could have been? And that sometimes that's worse than anything else in the world to sit. You know, we've, we've talked to a lot of women who like their mothers are sitting there now when times when everything's about like women and women and what can women do and what can women be? And there's a whole generation of women who are sitting there going, I never got to fucking be anything. Yeah. I never got to do anything or go anywhere. Or nobody gave a shit what I had to say. And it's, it's that sort of like regret at the end of a, of many, many years where you've given to children and you've given to husbands and you've given to family. And you're like, what did I have for me? It's selfish. It's narcissistic to say me, 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 but that's, part of the journey it was something re-watching that i know it's episode seven it's called look she made a hat which is a reference to sunday in the park with george yeah. which was on broadway probably when you were in pre-production for season one i don't know if you saw the jake yeah, Hall. we did yeah we did <laughs> i was like i think this great workout yeah, time much. um which <laughs> is a, for those who it's got a good voice um uh, really good voice yeah, yeah. really good shockingly voice. and we're like oh oh it's impressive this is gonna work yeah um, but for those who haven't seen it, it, it is about the sacrifices artists make, especially in, in their personal life to make art. And you, you, in that episode, you have Declan Howell talk about how he thought he was going to have a family with his painting, but he realized he can't because this is sort of all um, he has. What is your relationship to that as children of artists, as spouses whose personal relationship is also their work relationship? The idea of the sacrifice... Well, I can tell you that when we met, we were both working comedy writers. We were at lo lower levels working on other people's shows, and it's it, it was it's very very easy to it's it's much easier to understand what the other person's going through when than when you're doing it yourself. I mean, we would have really late nights, and you would come home at four a.m. I worked on one show that it was such a bad show that if we got out of the writer's room, even by 1.30, even though all the bars in LA would close at two, we'd still hit a bar, mm -hmm. like, and, but it, it's a lifestyle that like, you understand it. So, so like the other person's crawling into bed at four and you're getting up at seven in the morning and there's no misunderstanding about, you're being selfish by doing that job and you're being selfish. So that, that has helped us a lot. And we know, like, you know, one of our comics on our staff is getting married to another comedian. They both work separately. They both go on tours that are 
in suburb parts of the country, and I don't, and I think it's a lot, it's very easy on them because they, it's easier on them because they, they're doing the same thing and mm -hmm. they both want the best for each other. And so they understand the travel and they understand sometimes you go out drinking with the guys and hopefully it is just guys and not the girls and vice versa. So that, that part of it is, is there. You know, I think that you see in life, I've seen firsthand what happens when you put what you want on hold for somebody else. And then you wind up, and, and then everything you have is in someone else's hands and up to them. So if they screw it up, then you're inadvertently screwed. And that that's a very, uh, I don't know, it's, it's th that sense of powerlessness is just something I can't imagine. Now, we're, we're very lucky. We, we, don't, we do not have children um, because our children would be psychotic. Mm -hmm. And would be in some sort of mental institution right now. In fact, if we had children, we would just drive it directly to a mental institution because why cut out the middleman? Just <laughs> drop it off on the doorstep. Um, I don't even know that that was a conscious choice. I think it was like, it was just sort of like, this is our lives, and, and there are certain things that we needed to do and accomplish yeah. in a certain manner, and there's only so many hours in the day uh, to, to do that. And I, you know, we see friends who have altered what they want or you know for kids and some of them are happy and some of them maybe not so happy and then that's something that is passed down to other people in the family and resentment or sadness or I could have been or what would have been I don't know I'm I would be more afraid of that than I would be of anything else of getting to the end of your life and just that sinking my, my father was um dying he was very angry and I never understood it. And I tried to talk to him about it. I tried to say, look, I know you didn't become Jackie Mason, but you never worked a day job in your entire life. You, you bought a house mm -hmm. with a swimming pool. I never knew we, if we had money, we didn't have money. I always went to ballet school. I had ballet shoes. And I, there was, I was never, I want Chemin d'Affaires. I had Chemin d'Affaires. It's like I never knew what was not working. And you did that all working as a stand-up comic. To me, that is a success. To him, it was not. And so when he left, it wasn't hugs and kisses, and it was anger and, and sadness. And that, that's, I think that's the worst thing. That's the worst thing to get to the end, and, it, and everything you worked for it didn't mean anything, because you can't, you didn't, there was a picture in your mind, and for some reason you didn't go for it or attain it. Or. <laughs> That sound means it's time for a final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a lightning round. It's like a lightning round. I called it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite joke? Joke? Street joke? Either of you? Well, my favorite joke is the in the hand and her sisters. The uh, if Jesus came back and saw what was happening, being done in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. It's Max von Sydow mm -hmm. talking to Barbara Hershey, and that is my favorite. I have so many favorite Woody Allen jokes, but that, that, that's Yeah, I, I, I think more like Monty Python than jokes. So it's like the argument sketch would be my favorite joke of all time, even though it's six minutes long. But uh, yeah. Dan, you wrote and worked on Family Guy for a really long time. Yeah. It's a thing that you don't get asked about a lot. Yeah. Do you just have a favorite Family Guy joke you wrote? I wrote a few episodes. Um, I wrote, yeah, I, I did. I, let's see, how do, how do I describe it? <laughs> Peter, Peter was, was 
really upset at Lois for not knowing the lyrics to a Kiss song at a Kiss concert. And he said, your, your faux pas last night at the concert was so upsetting, I had to call a university professor to tell me what phrase I should use to describe it. Use faux pas. Thanks, professor. There was just kind of a perfect circularity to that that I liked. So that's, yeah, I had a lot of fun on Family Guy. It was, uh, in, in the early years, it was a really kind of raucous, it was an underdog situation yeah. we were so never we doing Alex well Borstein. yeah and we met alex borstein i've known her since family guy will brill who is on mrs mazel was in <laughs> is is in the um oklahoma the oklahoma yes i know we're dealing with his beard um do you guys see it the the sexy oklahoma we, yes. we haven't seen it with him no we saw it, we saw it the, off, off, but we're gonna we're gonna go see it with him I know you can't really say much about the gypsy that you're working on <laughs> but if you can use one word to describe what you hope from it what is a oh word? Boy. Um, one word. Or th- a sentence. You can I, you look, I, Gypsy to me is a perfect musical, and I want to do it justice. I want people just to walk out feeling like they've been on a ride. I have this face that is fairly Jewish and these glasses that are error appropriate. <laughs> if I was wearing more clothes at the time, what role would I play in Mrs. Maisel? Um, I would say a disgruntled village voice editor would work out yeah, very perfect. well. I think that would <laughs> yeah. work very well. Always mad at Norman Mailer. Always mad. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> um, and lastly, do you have a favorite Gilmore Girl line or joke that the other person wrote? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my, mine's easy because I she wrote this joke in in one of the first episodes where the girls had come back from a dinner at... They're at the parents' house at at uh, at the at the Gilmore's house, and Lorelai said because it would just end badly. It doesn't have to. Uh, it would be like the first fifteen minutes of Saving Private Ryan, but at least those guys got to be in France. He's never tried. Oh. Which I thought was just sort of the perfect. I was so jealous of that joke. I've been I trying to. Like I was joke. trying to find a joke like that. I, mean, I don't know if it's out there. That's my favorite joke too. The problem that, I, that I've ever written. The problem with that. I was very proud of that joke. The too. problem with this. The other side here is that I've written so many great jokes. It's, it's really hard, hard for yes, Amy to choose. Because they're all brilliant. All and this brilliance just, is just floating around. How do you grab it? How do you grab one out of the air and voice it? So. The the end of the interview. Cool. Yeah. That's it. Thank you guys. Yeah. Now get out of my office. Now get out. Can we keep the microphones? That's it for another episode of Good One. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. Amy and Daniel are obviously not on social media. Good One is produced by Mike Comite with production assistance from Jessamine Molly and research help from Serena Devi. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a headgum podcast. <laughs>